Hello and welcome to the seventh of our daily podcasts from this year's Wigtown Book Festival. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes. Hope that you're enjoying the podcasts. You can never miss an episode by subscribing to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, your smart speaker or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. This is the second of our two episodes dedicated to Scotland's year of coasts and waters. We speak to former Coast Guard Tony Wood about his experience working on the Solway and to author Donald S. Murray about his forthcoming book on lighthouses as well as the many works of his that have focused on the sea. And we feature two poems about the sea by poet Marjorie Lotfigil. We start though with Donald S. Murray. Author of 11 books, his work has received widespread critical acclaim and been shortlisted for both a Saltire Society First Book Award and the Cal MacDonald Memorial Award. We talked to Donald about two of his forthcoming books and asked him about his other works that cast their attention on the sea. Donald S. Murray, normally you and I would have um, crossed paths somewhere or other at a Scottish book festival this year. And of course, we can only be connected via the power of um, the podcast today. Are you on Shetland? I'm on Shetland. I'm in my study, uh, which is a very, very tiny, you know, covered like space. So I don't even get a nice view of Shetland at the moment. Uh, but that's where I am. Um, and you are, you're living in Shetland currently, but you are, in fact, a Ness man from the Isle of Lewis, which would, would strike me that being an islander, the sea has, has always had some part in your life. Could you say a wee bit more about that for us, Donald? Yes, I grew up in Ness and uh, not far from the Butter of Lewis. It was on, on my horizon at all times when I was growing up. So you'd see the flash of its light. And at that time, it not only it didn't flash just on, on the sea but also flashed and all the villages behind it went in a circle and so i grew up there uh you know and in the sense uh you know a lot of my forebears were kind of islanders i you know i have a north east forebears on one side too uh so and, you know there's uh, lighthouses like the monarch islands for instance a great uncle of mine went to stay in the monarch islands of benbecula and my uh, grandfather uh, and you know his his uh, they came from Tyree, Ballamartin in Tyree. So again, uh, you know the lighthouse, you know Skerryvore Lighthouse loomed large in their lives. So I, you know, I think you know I've always you know for generations back been you know in contact with the ocean. I suppose and with again. My you know, another you know grandfather of mine was in the navy during the war. A part of he was even part of the Arctic convoys. My dad uh, served too in the Royal Navy um, as a, on a minesweeper. So um, that's all. That's always been part of the kind of stories that I've heard. I would have thought if you if you've there's so much sea in your life and in your background and in your view line. You know, it sounds when you're on an island, you never really get away from being able to see it. Would you say it's crept into your work? I mean, it has. It is in your work everywhere. But tell us more about about that and how just the influence it's had on your work as a writer. I think you know it undoubtedly has. Even though I, I actually get seasick, Peggy, um, which uh, I am not the best sailor in the world, despite the fact that genetically I should have been. You know, one hesitates to say it. You know, out there to rule the waves. I'm afraid my stomach lets me down continually. So I was, uh, you know, as I said, you know, my father used to talk about, uh, you know, his life in sea and, he, you know, the fact that he had his 21st birthday way in uh, Sierra Leone and he spent time, you know, at the waters around Nicaragua too. So that was quite exotic when you were growing up. 
you know, in a sense, it's always been there. I've written, you know, about herring tales, you know, so I've visited, you know, a lot of the nations in, in, on the continent of Europe that were involved in the herring trade. And two, you know, uh, an awful lot of my relatives were kooka hunters who went out to Solisker off uh, the island of Lewis to harvest, you know, young gun chicks. Again, it's always been there. So I think it's inevitably part of my work. Mm. Is it too romantic a stretch to say the sea's your muse, Donald? I suppose it is. I suppose it isn't because that's to imagine the sea is some sort of you know saucy romantic thing when it when we know that it is a dangerous, you know, sort of terror. Um, oftentimes, I think it probably wouldn't be my muse itself because you know I've seen it in too many bad moods, you know, over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Quite but. right. Tell us then, Donald. You're, you've got a couple of new things on. I will. I will ask you um, probably about some of the books that that are already in the world, but I do want to know about the two new ones that you you're working on. First of all, if you wouldn't mind saying something for us about your Lighthouse book. Yeah, well, I was approached by Historic Environment Scotland to write a book in conjunction with the Northern Lighthouse Board about the history of lighthouses around Scotland's coast. So I was delighted to do that work, which I think is coming out next May. It was initially meant to be coming out in October. The photos are wonderful. We've, we've had, you know, got access to the photos of uh, a man called Peddy, who was at one time, I think, secondary to the Northern Lighthouse Board, and used to take pictures of the commissioners as they travelled around various lighthouses, you know, about 1900 to, I think, 1912. So he's got all these wonderful, fantastic photo- uh, photos uh, that should be in the book. There's going to be others, you know, the lighthouses, uh, you know, it's one of these things that you, you know, is, is obviously, you know, a magnet for, for wonderful photographers, wherever they are. So that would be a beautiful book. Um, and the other one I've written is is also about the sea. It's it's called In the Vale of Mist, and it's coming out next year from Saraband, which is a novel. Again, it's based on a sea story. Uh, in 1952, Operation Cauldron took place outside the um, you know the village of Tolsta. Again, some of my forebears come from Tolsta, in in the Isle of Lewis, and they tested biological weapons there. So that was, you know, a story I've been aware of for many years, but I don't think it's ever been kind of properly told. I'm going to ask you about the novel second, Donald, but I'm going to come back to the Lighthouse book and and just to try and understand a little bit more about what was your role in that book? What what were you looking to find when you were approached to take on the project? And how did you go about it? What was the research? You you mentioned the travel. Could you just say a little bit more about your approach? I actually exiled myself to, uh, I, I stayed in Loch and my friend John McMillan lent me his cottage uh, you know, so I was working there for a number of months. So that enabled me to travel to places like Gaelock, you know, Edinburgh, you know, Arbroath, Peterhead, where the Museum for Scottish Lighthouses was. So it also allowed me to kind of concentrate on uh, writing, you know, in a way that you could I couldn't really have done, you know, in my own home here in Shetland. Ironically, however, I found that the best stories, uh, you know, or some of the best stories I obtained were actually from Shetlanders. You know, Arcadians too, to some extent. That you know, the Northern Isles seem to be full of wonderful stories about lighthouses that had you know rarely been told before. I think because you know most people writing about that tend to come from the Central Belt, so in a sense they've always been downplayed these stories before. So you know that that's what I wrote about in that book, and I spoke to a, a large number of people while writing it. 
What was the best thing you learned then? A wonderful old uh, man whom I know uh, called Peter Johnson, uh, who comes from the Skerries. He actually was never a light keeper himself, but an awful lot of his family were. He, he worked actually on the lighthouse boat for a number of years when he was young, but he then became a full-time fisherman. A number of his stories, he was uh, he had uncles uh, who were involved in the rescue of uh, the ship, the Advina, in 1912, when a Swedish ship went down off the skies. And that was a fascinating story. But in addition, he was a young child on the skies during the Second World War when, you know, the lighthouse there was attacked, the lighthouse dwellings, and his aunt had been killed in there. So that, you know, in in a way, you know, so I was getting a first-hand story about an incident, you know, that, you know, is well-known here in Shetland, but it's not really that well-known elsewhere. So I spoke to men, like that, an old man from Lewis called uh, Colin McCauley, who had also been a light keeper in various places, you know, Cape Wrath, Fair Isle, you know, Penton, Skerries, isolated locations like that. And I really enjoyed talking to him because he had been involved in the rescue of an East German ship in the 1960s. So there are lots and lots of lovely, wonderful stories. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, did it make you uh, ever think that could be? I mean, it, it, I know the sort of circumstances with lighthouses, it's not the way it used to be, but it's. it strikes me that it's a very, it was a very tough life to be a lighthouse keeper. Could, is that something that you discovered? Uh, I, I would have said so. I think it, you, you, it, there were people, there were an awful lot of people who actually failed at the task. They would shoot you, Peggy, for calling them lighthouse keepers, by the way. They're very, very fussy about calling them light keepers. Light keepers, uh, so, ah, I'll uh, never do that again. There's a guy before I started this book. I, I think, you know, there was quite a turnover of people, you know, coming to the job and unable to cope with the isolation. And I think particularly, you know, in places like, you know, Skerryvore and Duartoch, you know, and Penton where in a sense, you were isolated in that lighthouse for a long time. You know, periods of time. I think that was very difficult because, you know, there were others like, you know, Battle Lewis, you know, somewhere ahead, you know, an awful lot of them where you had society around you. You could escape from your work, but it must have been like permanent lockdown. You know, the, we all know what that's been like over the last few months uh, for some of these people, very, very isolated. And, and I think that suits people, certain people, but it doesn't suit all. Mm, uh, wouldn't suit um, me, I wouldn't think. <laughs> there are times when I, I quite enjoy it. You know, I must confess when I was writing, I went into lockdown in a sense before anybody else did. Or writing, uh, you know, the book was in, in, in uh, Loch Callan. You know, I just stayed in you know, the cottage on my own. You know, there were lovely people around me whom I got to know all the time. So uh, in a sense, I kind of imitated the light keeper's experience while I was there. I was going to say the two don't sound too far distant, the the light, the light keeper and the writer. Did, did you get to the bottom of the mystery about the Flannan Isles? Um... Oh, I knew you would ask me about that one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I, it's, it's, um, I, I don't think there's much of a mystery about uh, Flannan Isles. I think, you know, as I say, Gibson wrote a poem about it. And in a sense, you know, an awful lot of uh, the facts, and I use that word loosely, people associate with the Flannan Isle as a you know, light-keeping story. They're not really facts at all. You know, a friend of mine, uh, 
John Love, I, he's a, a major naturalist. I, I drew on his book an awful lot. He had a book about the natural history of light uh, of light keeping. You know that people, you know, in a sense, kept these wonderful records of the birds they had seen and the plants around and the type of rock. You know, so it was uh, you know it was you know amazing job in a sense for naturalists. He I came to the area, of course, that two of the men had already been fined for losing equipment on the light, you know, previous light, and, and they would received quite heavy fines for that. And they ran out, and they raced out in order to bring these back. And that's how the whole tragedy happened. It, you know, it wasn't alone, you know, the Monarch Islands, too, uh, again, um, they lost two light keepers in a particular incident. But, you know, it was a Gibson story, you know, in the sense that transformed that. I don't think there was any mystery about it when it first happened. You know, the people of the Askley, you know, in, in uh, Lewis would have completely understood. It was later on the kind of mystery evolved after that. I mean, have lighthouses formed for you? What have they meant to you as a as a writer and a person, Donald? Have they have they been important to you in your work? The gleam has been a pre- uh, you know a constant presence. You know, when I was growing up, as I say, the Battle Lewis, that that's the central importance that you know to me because, in a sense, it was it was there all the time. You know, I walked down the croft and I could see it. Uh, I looked out the window from my home and it would be there on the horizon. So that, you know, was a constant inspiration. You know, I, I, I lived in Dudecla for a number of years and I could see that again the monarch light just there on the horizon. And here in Shetland, I look out my home window and uh, I see Bressa. So it's always as I'm going around, uh, quite accidentally, living in properties where um, I can catch a glimpse of uh, light keeping. I don't think it was ever part of my plan but that's the way my life turned out yeah there's something very reassuring about being able to see them i always think that yeah. they're still there kind of you know blinking away it's like a pulse isn't it it's kind of a reminder that life exists that, uh, outside your own you know and again i think we saw that again the lockdown yeah and then just just to bring us finally maybe to the to the novel um and this this story of the biological weapons and the boat why is that a story that you think hadn't been told properly I think because it was all hushed up and, and, and uh, you know, uh, not quite, you know, it, it did, in uh, 1952, a fishing boat from Fleetwood in Lancashire called the Carella actually went into the middle of where this, you know, major, you know, experiment in, in involving biological weapons took place. These, the lives of these fishermen, you know, when, you know, they returned home and when they went up, uh, to, uh, fishing in Iceland off the waters of Iceland, they were monitored and watched, checked, because there was a fear that uh, something, you know, that they would carry the plague with them. And so it was, you know, an example of, well, I suppose the incompetence of, uh, of the Ministry of Defence that that incident occurred at all. So they deliberately hushed it up. Uh, the, uh, it was also, you know, linked, you know, in some way. In fact, it was the same person in charge in reality. Though I don't actually push that in the book. It was a uh, same person that was in charge that was involved in the Grenard case, which is off of Bayonne and Wester Ross. That, you know, the use of edges for rather, how should I put it, you know, you know, dodgy experiments, is, you know, has been there. 
you know, quite, you know certainly since since the Second World War, you know, one could argue that you know, you know, there's a reason why Sellafield is in the very far north, you know, of England. There's a reason why Dunray is in the very, you know, the corner of Scotland and that corner of Scotland. But you know, it wasn't in the interests of the security service to reveal that story. That would strike me that's not the easiest book to research then potentially or how then did you get access to what you needed? Uh, I read an awful awful lot of books about chemical warfare or research. I always had that as a possible novel in my head. Particularly, I, I saw many, many years ago, and I didn't, I deliberately didn't check up on it, but there was a man arrested in Stornoway who was part of a coup involved in Operation Cauldron uh, on the Ben Lomond, uh, who was arrested for causing a disturbance. And, uh, you know, the, you know, the defence was that he had behaved uncharacteristically because of the strain of the job he was doing. So that was the inspiration for for it, and I think I read that story when I was about eighteen, and it's kind of been you know bubbling away in my head ever since. So what I what I did was in a sense duplicate that there is that there is actually three storylines in the book, but one of them involves a, a member of the crew who is disturbed by the work he's doing on board that ship, and also the potential of the Carella uh, incident on his own family. And not the first time, Donald, of course, that you've written about sort of a boat and its its impact, um, you know, kind of hanging over a community. Could you, could you men- just mention a wee bit about them, um, As the Women Lay Dreaming, which is your beautiful, just previous to this novel. Um, that's a story that you must have felt very strongly needed to be told. Well, again, that took me 16 years to write, you know, uh, I, I'm going over my head over it time and time again, trying, you know, first drafts second draft, third draft, I've probably about 15 drafts before I actually managed to get it done. That is, you know, the story of the Isle there uh, that sank in, you know, Stornoway Harbour on the 1st of January 1919, the early hours of the morning. And that affected, I think, you know, my native community, you know, for many, many years and probably still affects it to some degree today. And, you know, Lewis and Harris at that time had also experienced, I think, more, you know, more deaths per head of population than any other part of Britain during the First World War. I think we, in a sense, we sometimes overplay the trenches element in that conflict, and we underplay the number of people who were killed, you know, in the Merchant Navy, in the Royal Navy, and ships at sea, you know, and, you know that's, so that was... Uh, you know, I was always aware of that as a story. I couldn't think of a single novel that involved the First World War at sea. So there was that, and, and, and what that does to, you know, families and what that does to communities, you know, the trauma of that. I'd, I'd always wanted to write about that. So, uh, and the, the difficulty was in writing the book that I had to put the tragedy at the, the, the end of the book because what, what can you do to follow when you're talking about the deaths of 208 men, there's not much you can, you know, write that's much that's more powerful than that. I mean, I, I, w- I would ask you how, how, when you're dealing with, you know, a very non-fictional, you're given a fictional treatment to a very real and tragic thing. Is that quite a quite a challenge as a novelist? I find it exhausting. I, I, you know, and by the end of uh, last year, you know, when I talked about it, you know, 
so many book festivals. I felt quite exhausted by the whole thing, and, and I was speaking to Malcolm McDonald, or you know, it was a friend of mine was telling me that Malcolm McDonald had written that, you know, this wonderful book on the factual story of earlier. He felt exactly the same thing. It was almost as if you were experiencing the deaths anew by talking about it and entering into it imaginatively. So, you know, there were, I suppose, two, there were elements of my own personal history there, you know, that, you know I experienced childhood loss. The central, well, the, the boy at the heart of the novel, Alistair, also had, you know, lost his you know, mother at the age of eight. So it was, it was actually my own mother uh, had lost her mother at that, roughly that same age. So I was kind of going into that too, and I think that did make it very, very exhausting and very, very painful. Um, you're talking about it all the time. No doubt, no doubt. But the novel is is a beautiful treatment, a very sort of careful handling. Um, but finally, then another another sort of angle on the sea and you has been the silver darlings, and I just wanted to <laughs> maybe finish on finish on those silver darlings and, uh, and say a little bit more about about that very charming uh, history of the herring trail. Quite a different book. It is, yeah. No, I loved it. that. That was a much lighter book, and, and you and you discovered just. You know um, how important the herring had been, uh, you know, as a fish. You know how it was. You know, uh, I I went to Norway, Becky, and I spent some time with a reggae band up in Norway, and I thought, lovely people. You know, I was I spent time with Norwegians too, and talking to Norwegians about the thing. But uh, what fascinated me was, you know, they came right right away and said, "Oh, the herring is very important to us too," and. it turned out, of course, that um, the red herring had been had the traditional food, one of the traditional foods, along with yam, of the slaves in Jamaica, and that they you know, still possessed a taste for herring or for the kind of kipper variety of herring even to this day. So it struck me just how you know how much it transformed communities and how, in a sense, the you know the the whole, you know, whole of Europe had been changed and altered by it, but also its effects on, you know, people elsewhere. So I loved writing that book because I, I got the opportunity to explore so many locations. You know, the coast of Germany. Uh, I went down to Great Yarmouth. I went down to Lowestoft. And again, that was a family story, Peggy, because uh, my aunties were all herring, herring girls. So. That was a kind of, you know, it was lovely to write about that and, to, you know, to go to streets that they had gone to, you know, in, in you know, places like Great Thank you so much to Donald. Keep an eye out for his new books and, of course, don't be shy to get one of the older ones. And now we feature a couple of poems by poet Marjorie Lotfi-Gill on the theme of the sea. For a few years, I spent time on the Isle of Ling, off the coast of Seal, off the coast of Oban on Scotland's west coast every summer. It was a great place to write, largely because there's nothing much to do on the island. There's nothing to buy. There are no stores. And you had to get there by a ferry. And there's no mobile signal. So you just had to get on with things. But one of the things I did do was pick up some stories from locals. And the two poems I'm going to read today are really both stories that came from the locals on the island. The first is about uh, someone jumping off the ferry for a swim, unannounced, unwarned to his family members. And the second is a true story about people going down to the sea to pray as they would have done years ago. So I'll start with the first one, which is called Jumper. 
Ling Ferry. The man who jumped into the sea while waiting for the ferry at dusk one November night wasn't thinking of death or tides. Maybe he pictured the sunshine on the hills over Easdale, the dark magenta of Jura guarding the south end of Ling. He didn't want to walk on water or worry about the aunt and uncle in their car still waiting to make the crossing. The ferrymen didn't think about the rules for following jumpers or the danger of cross currents as he turned the ferry out to sea. Passengers emerged from their cars to scan the water's surface, to watch the man swim. He was out around the point before he thought his frame wouldn't move again from cold, though his arms were still clearing the water from habit. He wondered if it was sand or the current scraping along the soles of his feet. I should say the man was fine, and the story was told to me by his aunt, who was back on the ferry and surprised by his decision to jump in in November. They also wrote the poem long before I became a winter sea swimmer myself, so I found the story a little more shocking at the time than I do now. And this second poem is just a story that was told to me again about um, what used to happen all the time. Uh, people would go down to the sea to pray for the lives lost at sea or the souls lost at sea, fishermen, or for safe passage. So this is something that happened one of those days years ago. And most of the people that came down to the sea that day wouldn't have been able to swim. It's just called swimmer. Some miracles take the form of instinct, the way breath continues when the mind is gone, how we run from danger where the body prepares to fight it. That day Father Patrick took us to the beach to pray, we stood not at sea's edge, but away from the black water seeping its way towards our feet. As we prayed for the souls lost at sea, each of us was praying too, that a wave wouldn't take us while our eyes were shut. We all heard the shout for help, but only Father went into the water. Once he'd hauled the boy in, his older body dropped to sand, and we laid our coats over him until he came too, shouting that he couldn't have saved anyone, frightened of water as he was, not being able to swim. Thank you so much to Marjorie. You can hear more from her tomorrow on the podcast where she'll be joining us with her partner in crime, Claire Uckert, for the second of the Open Book Takeovers. And finally, we speak to Tony Wood, a retired Coast Guard who served for 32 years. His area stretched from the Mull of Galloway right along the Solway and almost to Siloth in Cumbria. Tony kindly joined us to tell us all about that life. Tony, simply, what does a Coast Guard actually do and how did you find yourself doing it? Well, the answer to that is very simple. My first 15 years was in Huddersfield. My second 15 years to the age of 30 was in the Royal Navy Communications Department. And then uh, I'd already met uh, my current wife, long-lasting Jen, and I didn't really want to spend my life at sea. And a friend of mine had already joined the Coast Guard Service, so I applied and I joined in 1974. And in 1978, on promotion, I took over in August 78 um, the Solway sector. 
I covered uh, the south coast of Dumfries and Galloway as far as route to Sillet. The Coast Guard is uh, part of the government and Her Majesty's Coast Guard and I'm talking about the time I was serving 1974 to 2007 when I retired. The Majesty's Coast Guard is responsible for all the maritime search and rescue on and around the coasts of the United Kingdom out to about 30 degrees west where we uh, not only control and coordinate our own search and rescue units both air, land and sea but we are also responsible for coordinating other units such as the RNLI lifeboats privately owned inshore rescue boats. We work very closely with the police, fire ambulance and local authorities and we cover everything that may happen both commercially and pleasure on and around the coast of the United Kingdom. That is no little task. Tony, I want to ask you a bit more specifically, if I may, about the Solway Firth as an area, maybe a little bit about the history and a little bit about the very specific conditions of that area. Well, the Solway, if you look on any map, you can see it is like a funnel. In addition to the way the winds react, having come over Ireland, the Isle of Man, the Southern Uplands, the uh, Lake District, in addition to all those natural sort of problems of weather, we also have the second highest tides in the United Kingdom. In other words, this is the greatest range of tides. You get a lot more water coming in, you get a lot more water going out, and therefore that water on spring tides is traveling much faster than you would expect. You can get the tidal speed, for example, in the upper, upper Solway, can be in excess of four, five, six knots. What does that mean to a layman then in terms of the conditions for, for being out on the sea there? What, what are the specific circumstances those conditions might lead to? Well, you've obviously got the commercial side of life where you have professional fishermen, boat owners. And in addition to the professional side of it, you also have the amateur, the visitor, the holiday maker, and primarily their biggest problems are you must always check the weather forecast and the tight times before you even think of using the coastline or going out to sea. Purely the tides, the size of the tides, means for someone, for example, a holiday maker visiting the area, in areas, for example, like Portling, Sand Hills Bay, you get a large expanse of sand and it's very attractive to go walking out too far. And if you're a long way out and the tide turns and starts coming in, there's an old cliche, the tide comes in faster than a galloping horse. And unfortunately, in parts of the Solway, that is correct. So therefore, it's very easy to be caught out and cut off by the incoming tide. Tell us, Tony, you, you're known as the, as the slinger of the Solway. What, where did that come from? Why, is, why are you known as that? Oh, well, Slinger is a nickname from my Navy days. Anyone in the Royal Navy with a surname of Wood was called Slinger. For example, in the wartime days, anyone with the name of Wood in possibly the RAF would have been known as Timber. Slinger kind of just sticks from the Navy days. 
I want to ask you about, um, I'm aware from your Facebook page that you've got a box of clippings, press clippings that cover this whole period um, with which you were you were in service all the way back to 1978, I believe. Can you tell us a little bit about what your plans are for those clippings and what it's like to be revisiting them now? During an average year where we may register approximately 50 to 60 search and rescue incidents a year. The majority or a lot are amateur holidaymakers, visitors. We obviously hit the local press in those days as it was, border television, the various radio stations. And during my time, I, for the want of a better word, collected press cuttings. I just shoved them in a cardboard box. No other reason than just genuine interest to see if we was getting through to the public, to see if our education policy was working with the public to prevent accidents, prevent incidents, make people aware of the Solway. We had little paper cuttings in the Galloway News each week for a few years. So I collected the paper cuttings, videoed certain television news items, some of the more serious ones, the Marielle, the Solway Harvester, Pan Am 103 at Lockerbie, and numerous cliff rescue incidents, windsurfing, yachting incidents, in the hope that we may be able to learn and improve our public relation um, policies with, with the general public. And it was only when I retired in 2007, one or two people that said, oh, you should write a book. Well, I've never written a book, but Jen, my wife, said, well, in this digital age a few years ago, she says, why don't you stick them on a Facebook page? And I thought, what a brilliant idea. So if you look at my headed page, I did it out of respect and appreciation for the police who we worked very closely with, the RNLI, the Auxiliary Coast Guards, our own rescue helicopter boys. I did it out of respect and appreciation of what everyone had given me over the years. And I thought, well, if I can give them something back, really, there are very, very few people know much about the Coast Guard search and rescue in the big picture. What a lovely idea and an absolutely brilliant and very special archive of of that time. Tony, could you um, maybe tell us about a couple of, acknowledging that there'll be obviously some difficult days in a job like that, but maybe some of the more standout highlights. I'm thinking of the May Day hooks or the day that the heifers nearly got stuck at sea. In general, there will always be genuine accidents. But when you get incidents, for example, like the Marielle in 85 and the Solway Harvester, when seven or eight men are lost from a small village like Whitton, Kukubri, associated towns around, when a whole fishing vessel crew is lost, that is one emotion. When you're involved in a cliff rescue or an almost drowning where two or three children, we had quite a few incidents in the Sandy Hills area, where children were being cut off by the incoming tide. And when you realize that someone's life is hanging by a thread as to whether a helicopter, a Coast Guard unit, or a lifeboat or rescue boat gets there in time, that's another type of emotion when children are involved. And then you have the tremendous bravery of Mr. Willisey, up in Annan all those years ago. There was a search and rescue documentary we did on him when he caught his leg in a winch 
and it was uh, separated from his body and he had to then cut it the remaining remains of the clothing and the leg off he pushed out his own distress call he phoned his wife and he attempted to steer the boat back to harbour till the lifeboat picked him up then we got him transferred by helicopter to hospital you know you've got individual braveries very very many emotions and yes there is always a black humour with any emergency service yes okay we did have some heifers in the River Cree and a couple of our auxiliaries here in Kikubri John Johnson head teacher from the Johnson primary Peter Hunter one of our local butchers what better combination than a head teacher and a butcher to put into a river to rescue some heifers uh, we can't go into detail what the butcher was whispering in the cow's ears at the time but you know yeah there's always a gut side to that I think a lot of people will be aware of superstitions that sailors have about boats in the sea. I just wondered if coast guards share those superstitions or have any of their own. I think my superstition is more down to reality. Um, if people applied a little thought, a little more common sense and showed respect for the sea, then I would say a large percentage of accidents and incidents would be spared. Yeah, I was gonna I was gonna ask you that. How can people best keep themselves safe out on the water? But I think that answers it just to employ common sense, follow the weather forecast and the tide times, I imagine. I mean you're right, Peggy. There, there are a lot of little things and they're always the basic things. For example, the number of people who have been rescued by the skin of their teeth and they have not been wearing a life jacket. And it's as simple as this. Before you go to sea, check the weather forecast, tide times. Don't get your ambitions mixed up with your capabilities. Is your vessel sound? Is it seaworthy? Have you got the correct equipment, life-saving equipment, distress equipment? Have you got communications? Have you told someone where you're going and when you do back? Because the bottom line is, it is your responsibility to alert the Coast Guard that you are in distress and you require assistance. And it is basically, and today in particular, it's highlighted on numerous websites, uh, the Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, HM Coast Guard, RNLI, and a lot of it is very, very basic common sense. Unfortunately, quite often in the heat of the moment, the excitement or whatever, that the very basics are sometimes forgotten. Many thanks to Tony Wood. Do check out his Facebook page, The Slinger of the Solway, to find out more about many of those stories that he was talking about. Well, that's it for another episode. Many thanks to Tony, to Donald and to Marjorie. And of course, thank you to you for listening in wherever you are. Tomorrow's episode is the second of our open book takeovers. So I'll be back in your ears on Friday with an episode celebrating our sister book town in New Zealand, Featherston. Until then, take good care of yourselves. Goodbye for now.